Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church, where we believe all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. For more information, go to iconchurch.org. Welcome to Icon, and uh, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here. It's great to have you. Um, I mentioned a, a minute ago uh, that we are uh, only four months in uh, to this whole thing, and uh, and that's technically true. Um, but we, and this is, uh, we want to kind of start talking about this a little bit. We technically haven't actually launched yet uh, as a church, and uh, I know that that could seem silly to some of you who've been here since March 3rd when we started weekly services. Um, but the plan from the beginning was that we were going to launch in September. And uh, we started doing like prayer meetings and stuff in January. And, uh, and, and basically just uh, more of y'all came than we thought. And so we started doing the weekly thing in March, uh, which wasn't our plan. And so we still have a plan to technically launch in September. Uh, it's probably not going to look a lot different than uh, what, what you've seen here. Uh, we may uh, have a little bit more of our stuff together, but I don't want to make any promises just in case we don't. Uh, so uh, just keep that in mind because we are going to do some, uh, some pretty cool events leading up to September 8th, which is technically our launch Sunday. So we've got um, one is a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin uh, wrote a book called Confronting Christianity, which is fantastic. Uh, if you've ever read uh, the book Reason for God, if you've, tell me if you've read Reason for God by Tim Keller. Great book, really great uh, book, kind of making an argument for Christianity. Um, Confronting Christianity is similar, and I would say, and this is borderline heresy when you're talking about Keller, uh, but I think this one's better, actually. And so uh, she is going to be coming out uh, the weekend of September 8th on the 6th, that Friday night, uh, to do a little lecture Q&A kind of thing that is going to be great and uh, and a great uh, opportunity for you all to bring friends who are maybe curious about Christianity skeptical of Christianity, whatever, um, she's going to answer questions, and, and that's going to be, uh, I think, a really, really good time that uh, I highly recommend. So we're going to do that. We've got uh, the band Citizens is going to do kind of a little uh, low-key storytellers show for us. We've got, we're going to have a party in the park. We're going to do a bunch of stuff in September leading up to this. So I just want to put that on your radar uh, that this isn't real. Okay, what you've been experiencing, not even real church yet. It's going to get really real in September, and it's just going to blow you away uh, how real it's going to be. So until then, uh, we're going to keep teaching through 1 Corinthians. So turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, We took a little break last week uh, to talk about the vision for icons. If you missed that, that's up on the podcast. I'd highly recommend going back to that if you've been wondering why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, We talked about that a little bit last week. Um, 1 Corinthians is a really long book, and so we've broken it up into several little mini-series. And uh, the, the whole series we're calling Gospel Formed Church uh, because Paul in 1 Corinthians is writing to a church in Corinth that is pretty messed up. Honestly, we've already talked about some of the grosser stuff they were into, uh, but uh, really at every turn are, are missing the point of, of Christianity and, and what they're trying to be as a church. And Paul continually, kind of issue by issue, is reorienting them back to a gospel-formed vision for each of these various things. So we've talked about identity and sexuality and all, all kinds of different stuff. For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about freedom and what a gospel-formed uh, vision of freedom might be. And, and we're not primarily talking about freedom in, in like political terms, uh, but we're also not not talking about that. There's certainly implications that we've talked about that have to do with kind of rights and, you know, whether they be civil rights or whatever the case may be. This week, um, so each week we've kind of talked about this gospel form vision of freedom and rights and and the consistent pattern in all of it has been that uh, someone who is gospel formed will enjoy the freedom that God has given us in Christ, but will also readily lay it down, lay down our freedoms and lay down our rights for kind of higher purposes. So we've talked about laying down our rights for uh, 
kind of the, as Paul called, the weaker brother, the weaker Christian, um, folks who are struggling still with certain aspects of life that we would kind of willingly and for their sake lay down some of our rights in order to protect and care for them. Uh, Paul talked about laying down our rights for the non-Christian, that we would not uh, kind of walk in our full freedom for the sake of our witness to non-Christians. Tonight, uh, we're going to talk about the, the reasons to lay down our rights and freedoms for our own sake, for our own good. And there are times where we would do that. And, uh, and then next week, we'll talk about laying down our rights uh, for God's glory and for God's sake. Before we get into the text, though, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, if you haven't already turned there. Um, before we get into that, one of the things that this whole discussion has brought up is, uh, I think, a uniqueness of the Christian faith that I, I want to draw just a moment's worth of attention to. Most faiths and philosophies in our world today, including all of the major religions and then whatever kind of quasi-religion that is practiced by the majority of uh, secular folks in Seattle and Capitol Hill in particular, um, that is, again, kind of quasi-religious and quasi-spiritual, all of them have fairly distinct categories for what is right and what is wrong. And I think Christianity is unique in that there is far more nuance to how we look at morality and, and look at these categories of right and wrong. And, and some of this discussion of freedom uh, speaks to that, right? Um, in, a, in a fairly monolithic vision or, or kind of a black and white religious vision, we would go, hey, there's things you can do and there's things you can't do, and that's the end of the discussion. And the things that are right, you can always do, and the things that are wrong, you can never do. Case closed, stop talking. And there is a kind of a, a, a certain section or vision of Christianity that thinks this way, and we would maybe call that legalism or moralism, where it's like really clear, these are the good things and these are the bad things, and do the good things, don't do the bad things, and that's it, right? And it's like uh, uh, drinking and smoking and running with girls who do, or something was the old saying. Uh, you just don't do those things, those are the bad things, and then, uh, and then everything else, I guess, is the good stuff. So um, that's not a gospel-formed vision of, of, uh, of morality, right? And so I, I kind of was brainstorming a list of categories that I think might be helpful, a helpful way to think about this issue of laying down our freedom. So one, there are things that are just morally right, right? Uh, praying to God is going to be morally right. Loving your neighbor is morally right, and it's just always morally right, Okay? There are things that are always morally wrong. Lying is morally wrong. And uh, there are people who've written very long books about how lying is always wrong, no matter the situation, lying is wrong. So that's an example. Another example might be like uh, enjoying soccer. Just wrong. Just always wrong. It's un-American. It's wrong. Uh, it's just not what we do here. Okay? So there's things that are right, things that are wrong. There are things that are right, um, but we do them for the wrong reasons. Okay? And so this would be the heart of legalism or the heart of moralism, which says, I'm going to do the right things so that I earn the favor of God or I earn my place with God. I'm doing right things not unto God, but ultimately I'm doing right things unto myself and I'm leveraging God to bless me. It's almost like uh, the vision of God as the vending machine. As long as I put in proper change, I deserve my Doritos and if I don't get them, I'm angry, right? And that's kind of using God. Uh, and so it's the, doing the right things, but for wrong motives. Another uh, category would be uh, wrong, things that are wrong for some people sometimes, right? And so we talked about this in the discussion of laying down our freedom for the weaker brother. There are some times where doing some things are okay, and there's other times where doing that same thing is wrong. So the kind of most obvious example would be uh, drinking alcohol, right? That is a morally neutral thing bordering on heavenly good. Uh, but uh, there are categories and there are moments where this is, it's actually morally wrong to do that when you are with somebody who struggles with alcoholism or you know, that's kind of the most obvious example of where you're, you kind of walking in your freedom would actually be harmful to the other person and selfish and therefore kind of morally wrong. 
Okay, so that's another uh, example. So there's uh, another category is participating in something neutral for right or wrong reasons. So sports would be a great example of this. We can participate in any sport, and it's morally neutral besides soccer. We can, we can participate in all the sports, but we can do so for right and wrong reasons. So we can participate in sports for right reasons, which is just to enjoy competition, to, to defeat someone else. Is that I, I'm driven by that a lot of times. I often tell people, I don't want to just win. I want you to lose and know that you lost to me, okay? And so that's kind of some of my motivation. Um, that might creep into the wrong category, but I'm not, I'm not there yet where I could admit that. Um, there are, but there are wrong ways to engage athletics as well, which become, when it becomes your identity and when you're, you know, trying to crush people and all of that, but we'll see. Um, and then uh, there, are, there are ways we can observe things that are wrong for right reasons, okay? And this is where it starts to get tricky. So um, there are things that are produced by our culture that the, the thing themselves, you could argue, are at best morally neutral, probably morally uh, bad, um, and I'm thinking of media in particular, and so maybe particular television shows or movies that depict things that are morally wrong. I don't want to name names of things like Game of Thrones, but like things, for instance, that are you know depicting uh, the depravity of mankind. And there is there is a way to consume things like that that can be morally right. And there's a whole lot more ways to consume those things. That's Kind of obviously morally wrong, but there is a way to consume culture that is obser observing it and learning from it and trying to understand it. Uh, that may or may not be an example of a way that's possible. Okay. Uh, there is a way to participate in wrong things for the sake of mission, right? So um, we might attend a thing like, uh, again, don't want to give too many examples that might, uh, that everyone might know, but like uh, there is a way to participate in things that are morally, let's say, ambiguous, um, but doing so kind of to, to come alongside a non-Christian friend or to build community, say like going to Burning Man or something, like it's morally ambiguous, but, uh, but if you're you're there with somebody and you're trying to build relationship or something, a lot of you try to do this with dating, don't recommend it, but also possible. There is a category for something that is too much right, too much of a good thing. So um, uh, the best example of this is parenting, right? Where um, it is good to be a good parent, it is good to care about your kids, but there is a way to care about your kids too much where you, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're emotionally wrapped up in them, you uh, watch them all the time um, and, and never ignore them and, uh, and, and you're just kind of obsessed with them. Come on guys, that was a joke. Are not enough of you guys have kids to get that you have to ignore your kids sometimes, that's just part of being a parent. Um, but there's a way to take good things and make them ultimate things, which is sin as well. And you kind of overdo the thing. So my point in all of that is to say, um, Christian, a Christian view of morality, a Christian view of how we participate in the world as Christians comes with built-in tension. And I think that this tension is purposeful that God has asked us to actually step into that tension, not just as a, a kind of an inevitable consequence of the fall or inevitable consequence of the fact that we cannot detach ourselves from the reality of the world, but I actually think God calls us into that tension on purpose because it requires us to have relationship with him. If God had just simply uh, given us a list of things to do and a list of things to not do, that would have simplified the whole process significantly, right? I mean, there's days, there's, there's parts of me that wish God had just laid down, right, like the Ten Commandments or even 20, 30, maybe even 100 commandments and then just gone like, hey, just do these things, don't do these things and call it good. 
But he didn't do that. He gave us 10 commandments, but then he kept talking and kept engaging with us. And there was more to learn. And there was more, like, I feel like the more God speaks, the more kind of ambiguity there is. And the more it requires us to actually know him and not just get the list from him, which I could get the list and just walk away and never talk to him again unless I needed something. So I think some of the ambiguity and the tension that the scripture creates for us is actually intended for us to go, I don't know the answer to this question. I don't know how to navigate this situation. So I have to come to God in prayer. I have to come to the scriptures and read and reread and reread and try to understand and actually enter into by the kind of by the leading of the Holy Spirit, enter into the mind of God and the character of God and go, okay, how, how do I do this? And so there's a built-in tension to what uh, theologians or pastors would call contextualization, right? Like how do we take the Bible, how do we take our faith and walk it out into real life, into actual Capitol Hill where I uh, work, live close to, and most of my life is right here. And I walk around going, how in the world do I take a, a, a topic like this where Paul is going to spend the first eight verses or so referencing the Old Testament, which happened thousands and thousands of years ago? How do I take that? Or how is it, how is it let alone my ability to communicate, but how is it relevant to today? That's the challenge we all have, to take what we know about the gospel and actually live it out in an ever-changing, ever-moving kind of world that has flat-out transformed in the last 10 years or so on a day-to-day -day basis because of technology and, and cultural things. How do we do that? And I think that Paul is going to help us navigate some of that because the question with all of this, how do we lay down our right stuff, is when and how and when do we do it and when do we don't do it. And all of that requires relationship with God that he's kind of drawing us into. Okay? So all that being said, let's start in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers... That our fathers, and this is uh, him referencing his, the kind of the Jewish patriarchs, the, the ancestor, the Jewish ancestry of the church, which was not all of the church of Corinth, but some. That our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Now, Paul introduces a couple of different things here, and, and I don't have time to go kind of get into the backstory on all of them, but he's referencing Old Testament stories that most of the Jewish members of this church would have been very familiar with, and he's kind of citing them as examples, and what he's, what he's citing them as examples of is people who were kind of with God. They were the people of God. It says they were baptized into Moses. They came, you know, went through the cloud and through the sea, all of these are references to significant Old Testament stories that was kind of connecting them to the, the history of the faith. And he said, even though these were the people that actually experienced walking on dry ground through the Red Sea as they escaped Egypt, the people that actually uh, were, were led by the pillar in the desert, they were actually, they, they knew Moses, right? They, they walked with Moses. Even though these people kind of had that kind of relationship with God, God was still displeased with them. 
There was, there was, they still didn't walk out the faith as God had led them. And he cites something that we talk about here a lot, the Bible talks about a lot, and that's idolatry. He, he calls them idolaters. And the working definition that we kind of have for that here is that idols are things that we love, trust, honor, and obey. They're things we love, trust, honor, and obey. Now, in the Old Testament, these idols took on physical forms more often than not. So they were a golden calf, say, or uh, you know, a, a piece of wood whittled down into the form of a person or some, some sort of deity. Um, but even though they were uh, physical in, in form, there was, they were always representative. They always symbolized something else. So the golden calf is a great example of this. So um, the people of Israel have come out of slavery. Moses goes up to the mountain to hear from God. He's gone a little too long. The people get restless and they melt down all their gold and create this golden calf and then begin to worship it. So Moses comes back down from receiving the Ten Commandments, comes back down the mountain, comes to the people and they, you know, he was gone an extra 15 minutes and they freaked out and built this idol right? And we read that story and we're like, that's crazy. Like why? They, they just got like miraculously saved out of slavery. How are they already forming this idol out of gold? Literally, they're taking off their necklaces and their bracelets, melting it down and forming this idol and then worshiping that idol. Like it, it's insane, right? It's insane that a, a, a people would just experience the provision of God so recently and then the very next time God doesn't show up fast enough or in the way that they expected him to that they would so quickly shift their hope to something else and put their future in the hands of a created thing even though the creator had just provided for them. And as, as, as foreign as that story can seem because they actually formed a literal golden calf, it's not actually dissimilar from what we do all the time, right? Because what they were looking for was rescue, right? They, they, they sensed danger that they didn't have, you know, their, their leader was gone and it had been several minutes since God had provided in a miraculous way. And so they were feeling, feeling fearful and they just needed something more tangible that they could cling to. And so they turned from God to this idol. And so because it was a golden calf, it seems crazy to us, but how often have we turned our attention from God to money or from God to a person or from God to a job or from God to a thing, right? Like we're not, we're not creative idolaters. Humans aren't. The same things that people clung to in the Old Testament, we cling to today, whether it be money or possessions or spouses or kids or popularity or work or power or sexuality or in the end of the day, ourselves. It's the same move. And so Paul is trying to connect them back to this original story, these, these kind of formative stories that they, that, so that they might see, listen, you're turning just the same way the Israelites did, even though they actually walked with God, and then there were consequences for it. Right, so um, I, I was thinking about this this week and thinking, gosh, you know, idolatry is one of those things that we talk about a lot, but it can be... Uh, vague a little bit or it can be kind of hard to pinpoint and so um, I, I actually thought of this while I was walking in my own idolatry and thought oh I could just tell him about mine and then I thought no I don't want to admit mine in public um, but I will so um, I have this thing that I do and, and it occurred to me this week, and, and so this is, isn't going to be a great story. It's going to be kind of benign, but that's okay. Um, it, just makes for, it makes it less awkward uh, than, than something super weird if I was doing. Um, so church planting, what we're doing here um, is uh, it, there's, there's an element of risk involved with it, right? So they say something like 80% of church plants fail in the first three to five years, 
That's a statistic that warms my heart. So, uh, so it, it, there's some inherent risk, and there's always, there's always challenges. So like right now, we don't have a consistent worship leader, music. Like we, we got guys like Pete who come in and other friends who come in on a, you know, every other week. We have someone who never had the same person two weeks in a row. That adds a layer of stress. We uh, are renting this building in the evenings. We'd really love to have a morning service. And I'm like 0 for 22 on finding a space for morning service. There's all, all kinds of things like that that stress me out. And one of the things I've noticed is that when I get stressed out and ultimately just fearful, like I just get fearful. I, I work in a co-working space that I love. It's just a couple blocks away, surrounded by people who have just absolutely no interest in what we're doing here. And in fact, probably if they knew what we were doing here, would be uh, they, they just wouldn't feel great about it. And so I, I have this kind of constant fear of like, what did we decide to do? This was a terrible idea. And my, my response to it is not to pray Often, it's not to go to God and go, God, I need you, help me, and calm my fears. I go to two things. One, I, I go to uh, Redfin, and I look at houses in other places. <laughs> not because I want to move to other places, but it's the fantasy of other places. And then I go to this other website, which is a church, uh, it's like a church staffing website, and I just look at what other jobs are out there that might be more secure that might have uh, a better uh, dental program uh, or, or a dental program. Uh, I'm not picky. Um, I'm looking for security in other things. And I know, like I know, because I get up here and I teach this to you guys every single week, I know that, that there's no security in those places because I've worked at those places. In fact, I, I moved from one of those places to here. And I know, like it's great and wonderful, but it's not the solution. It's not the solve. It doesn't rescue me. It's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. It's escapism. It's not wanting to deal with the fear or deal with the desires or deal with the needs or deal with the problem. See, idolatry is, in one sense, any time we are trying to solve a problem with anything but God. That, that's idolatry. We're going, I've got this need or I've got this fear or I've got this thing. And instead of going to God and going, Lord, help provide, you know, like, work with me here, like calm my fears, meet my needs, that we would go to something, that we would look horizontally and go, okay, what person or job or thing or series of things can give me the kind of peace and joy and satisfaction that I'm looking for? In fact, um, just the other day, I um, was feeling some of this anxiety around finding a location. And um, oftentimes what I'll do when I don't go to Redfin um, is I'll stand up and just walk. I'll get up out of my desk and I'll go walk around the neighborhood and it just distracts me. And I was feeling kind of some of this fear and I got up to go take a walk and I was walking out of my building and in the, by the kitchen, there's a little sign that says, don't do it. And it's about don't leave your dishes in the sink. But as I'm walking out, I just glance and it said, don't do it. And I'm like, fine, you know, and I walk back. And it was just like this moment of God going like, no, don't, don't distract yourself. Don't try, to, don't, don't try to find solace in something else or, or pretend like you're not actually scared. Just come talk to me. Just come be with me. In fact, uh, Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 10. He says now, uh, verse, uh, sorry, verse 10. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. At the heart of the, this issue of idolatry is that when we seek satisfaction or peace or whatever in, in these other things that, that are often fine things, it, it's not a sin to go check out Redfin, right? 
I don't think it is. It's not a sin to go to church staffing website. That one, that one's closer. But there's going for a walk in Capitol Hill is not a sin. But when I'm doing these things in order to meet some need in me, when I'm doing these things in order to calm fear in me, when I'm doing these things in order to satisfy some desire in me, that's when that's when it becomes sin. That's when it becomes destructive. And, and Paul talks about the consequences of this that, that the Old Testament people experience, the pain, the suffering, the consequences that are just very real kind of cause and effect consequences when you burden a person with godness, right? When you, go, when you need joy or you need peace, you need safety, you need security, and you look for it in a person instead of God, you're asking someone to be God instead of just a person, which means you're asking them to be as strong as God is. I, I, I experience this with my kids all the time. I have young kids, and they'll be scared at night, or at least pretend to be scared at night so that I have to go upstairs and, and cuddle with them. And they go, I'm scared of bad guys and I'm scared the bad guys are coming on the roof and they've got this this whole elaborate story about what the bad guys are doing and my temptation is to go well you're, you'll be fine because daddy's strong and and I'll, I'll protect you right like I know how to fight bad guys I don't but they they don't know that and so that's the temptation in me is to be the solve and then I realize very quickly like no I can't actually protect them and it's one of my deepest fears as a parent that I can't protect my kids ultimately I can't protect them God can protect them and so if I try to insert myself or I ask somebody else to be that I'm saying I need you to be as strong as God and they're that, that that's laying a burden on them that they cannot bear and that they will break under a hundred times out of a hundred. So this is just not the, the reason why there are consequences for, these, for idolatry, both kind of cause and effect consequences, but also the wrath of God poured out us because we are asking other people to be God and we are crushing them with our expectations. And God looks down and goes, don't crush my children with your expectations. Don't crush my things, the created things that I gave you to be a gift. Don't, instead of just taking them as a gift, you're asking them to be me. They can't be me because I didn't make them to be me. And so you're crushing that thing in the, in the, in the end. You're crushing that and not coming to me. Like, don't do that. So we receive correction for that. Consequences. So there are times where we lay down our freedom, we lay down our rights, we, we don't walk in things that are otherwise morally positive or even morally neutral because they are an expression of idolatry. It's good to love your wife, it's not good to expect her to be God for you. It's good to love your children, it's not good for them to be the thing that gives you identity. You're crushing them, you're killing them. Number two, verse 14, he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Now, stop. Paul is, is building an argument here towards something. And so I, I want us to understand kind of his first, his first part of the argument. Paul is saying, when, we part, when Christians partake of communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, when we participate in it, when we take the bread and eat it, when we take the wine and we drink it, we are participating with Christ in a, in a sense. Now, we are not Catholic. Catholics believe that uh, the, when blessed by the priest that the bread becomes the actual body of Christ and the blood becomes the actual blood of Christ. And so we are actually eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ in a very real, it's called transubstantiation, that it actually becomes the body and the blood. We don't believe that. But we also don't believe that it's just a mere memory. That this is not just a, a ritual that we partake of like a birth, like singing happy birthday to, to remember the day something happened. It's more than that too. 
Paul makes a very clear argument that this is participating in something. That we are entering into relationship through this ritual of communion. We are entering into relationship with Christ and actually participating in his death in, in some kind of way. So he's building this argument that when the Jews participated at, at, at the altar, when they made sacrifices, they participated with God in the sacrifice in a kind of meaningful spiritual way, the same way when we take communion, we participate with Christ in a meaningful way. His argument goes on, verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Now, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, um, Paul just made the opposite argument uh, just like a couple weeks ago and a couple paragraphs ago in the text. When he argued that basically like food sacrifice to idols is nothing because idols are nothing. Right? So, yet we get it. We understand that this little wooden statue or this metal statue, it's just wood and metal. It's not a thing. And so food sacrificed to that thing, it doesn't matter because the thing's not a thing. Okay? So he just made this opposite argument. So now he's starting to build an argument on the other side. Remember I said there's tension in this, this issue of contextualization. There's tension in this issue of how do we as Christians enter into culture? So he goes, what do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. I love passages like this because there's a lot of the Bible that is kind of easy to understand in parallel with our culture. Where um, Christianity can just be kind of a, either a, a, a more religious version of culture or a slightly more moral version of culture or, a, you know, it's just like, it's like two degrees off of what we see in the world. It's just slightly different. But what I love about a passage like this is that Paul talks about demons and, and, and we never do. Like I, uh, I sit in my co-working space and, and I just listen to everybody else's conversations all day long. It's fantastic. I'm just a professional eavesdropper. And not once have I heard anyone talk about demons. There's, there's been zero discussion of demons in my co-working space, uh, if you wondered. This, uh, spiritual, that's not to say there haven't been conversations about spirituality, because there have, but the spirituality of our world today and the culture that's around us is this kind of vague idea of spirituality that's oddly moral primarily, meaning um, it, the, the way it fleshes itself out is a lot about what you can do or can't do or can say or can't say. And, and it's kind of oddly moral for a, a, a kind of a godless spirituality, um, but it's vague at the end of the day. And so in the, the culture's vision of of spirituality, whatever God or goddess or higher power, or ultimate being, or whatever it is that you believe in, is, is kind of always vaguely there, always positive, always for you, always there to bless you, but otherwise uninvolved. This is kind of the, the spirituality of the day. Where Christianity, in particular, has always been very specific about who God is, about what God's name is, about the characteristics of God, and the very specific about the fact that there is also very clear evil in the world and evil personified in Satan and demons, like that these are real things. And, and I would argue that, in fact, this vision of a much more specific God is far more helpful because I do wonder what a vaguely positive God being, uh, what that God being does when pain hits. 
when suffering enters because they're kind of undyingly positive, undyingly vague about love and acceptance and being for you. And so I, I do wonder when the, when, when the crap hits the fan, where is that God and what does that God do? So Christianity has always been very specific about this and about this idea of evil and demons. And there is kind of a movement in culture to just kind of gloss all of that a little bit and, and make it kind of vague and not easy to understand. So I, I kind of love passages like this because it pulls back some of that veil and says, Paul is basically arguing, you ought not eat in these temples because even though the idol is nothing and the stone is nothing and the wood is nothing, the people, the pagans in his word, the pagans that go to worship are doing so as if they were worshiping demons. There is an intentionality behind them being there, even though the thing itself is wood. The people who are there are there to worship demons. What they call gods are really just demons. And one commentator that I read this week talked about sacraments of culture. And that this seemed to be, for Paul, a dividing line. Because we're talking about a guy who just a few chapters ago was arguing to be all things to all people, right? To the Jews, I become a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. But to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. So on the one hand, he's saying, be all things to all people. But then there's this dividing line. He says, no, but this is, is actually unto demons. This is, about, this is about something else. And so this idea of sacraments of culture has kind of stuck with me. That there might be practices around us in our everyday life or uh, in, in our world around us that would be otherwise benign or otherwise maybe even positive things, but because of the fact that the people that are entering into them are doing so with the explicit understanding that they've kind of endowed it with spiritual or existential meaning and they're doing it precisely to not follow God but they're doing this thing in order to acknowledge to love trust honor and obey something else that Paul calls demons now um, of course you're going to ask me what's an example of this and I've struggled with this all week. In fact, just like two hours ago, asked somebody if they had any ideas of an example of this. Because one of the things that's happened in our culture is that obvious spirituality, like Paul was facing in Corinth or like the Old Testament speaks of, has kind of diminished in, in our seemingly secular society. Things have been kind of tamped down in this area and so hidden. But I think there are some examples of some very obvious ways in which we have taken otherwise good things and endowed them with spiritual meaning and that our culture kind of walks in, in these things. So um, a couple of quick examples that will probably just get me into trouble. But I think, uh, I, I think voting is an example of this. Where it's something that is um, a, a kind of national holiday that has become a moral thing. Right, that not only the act of voting itself, but who you vote for and what platform you're voting for. And we walk out of the voting booth with stickers that are meant, I think, to shame everyone else um, and to establish your moral superiority that you did this thing and that you're part of the solution and not just the problem. And, and it, it, it becomes kind of quasi-spiritual because we give it this transformative meaning that if we do this thing and we do it right and we vote for the right people, we could actually create the utopia we all long for. In a, in a very different way, I think, uh, I think Instagram is another example of this at, at a very micro level. And if, if those of you who know me well know my hate-hate uh, relationship that I have with social media, um, 
But Instagram is one of those things, and platforms like it. I'm sure there's others that I've never even heard of um, because I'm old. Uh, But it is a means by which we attract the kind of identity we long for, the, uh, the position, the fame, the notoriety. We post things like I did today, and I was counting for myself so that I could be the first to repent. But I posted a quote today that I'm about to read from you, and then I checked Instagram four times after that to see how many likes I got and if there were any comments. And at the fourth time I checked it, I started to think, this could be a problem. This could be an example of a thing that I have given. I have given this app the power to tell me how important I am. And if that's not a religious move, I don't know what is. I'm asking this thing, yes, it's in a small way, but I'm asking this thing to tell me my place in the world. How many people like me? How many people follow me? How, many, how much importance do I have? And when, it, when I click on it and it says 10, I'm happy with that. That's where I'm at on Instagram. 10 feels good to me. I go, okay, I'm doing okay. And there's a surge of, you know, dopamine and, and all of that that happens with that but I'm asking it to tell me who I am. And so Paul is arguing here, listen, there, is, there are things that we do that would be otherwise morally neutral. He just argued for this, that eating food sacrificed to idols is not a thing because those idols aren't a thing. But when we're surrounded by a group of people that are all doing that thing in order to be told who they are, how they are, how good they are, then we're participating in this kind of group religious practice that is, in his words, in a sense, participating with demons. Because we're asking something else to tell us who we are and how we are. Now, am I saying that Instagram has demons in it? Yes. (laughs) That's obvious, right? And I know that sounds extreme, but it, it would be better for us as Christians to see, see the world as spiritually as we possibly can rather than to see the world as we often do, which is as uh, unspiritual as possible. Um, uh, Catherine Booth, whose husband founded the uh, Salvation Army, they did that together. She says this. She says, many do not recognize the fact as they ought that Satan has got men fast asleep in sin and that it is his great device to keep them so. He does not care what we do if he can do that. We may sing songs about the sweet by and by, preach sermons and say prayers until doomsday and he will never concern himself about us. If we don't wake anybody up, but if we awake the sleeping sinner, he will gnash on us with his teeth. This is our work, to wake people up. If nothing else, we ought to see the cross as an expression of the seriousness of the things that we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Because we can joke about Instagram, we can joke about Snapchat, and we can joke about going to see concerts or watching Game of Thrones, or we can, we can joke and laugh about all of these specific examples and how voting is about demons and all of this stuff, and we can joke and laugh and ha, ah, yeah, yeah. But the reality is, if, the, if these everyday things that we do weren't that big a deal and they didn't matter that much, then again, like I said last week, the cross was this massive overreaction of God. That there was something about what's been happening in the world as we see it, in the world as we know it, that, that required God to go, no, the only solution is that I send my son to die. That's it. That's the only thing that can save these people from the idolatry, from the craziness, from the blindness to the spiritual world. That, that God had to become flesh to demonstrate to us the seriousness of the situation. And and then, two, to live in this tension, as Jesus did, that Jesus became as much like humans as humanly possible. That God became incarnate. That God came to us being as human, looking like human, acting like human, talking like human, being a specific cultural human while never ceasing to be God. 
this is the challenge that we have. This is what God's calling us into as we navigate this world. To say, be a Seattleite. Be a, a, a resident of Capitol Hill. Be a light to this place. Make sense to this world. Talk like a Seattleite. Walk like a Seattleite. Act like a Seattleite. Dress like a Seattleite. But never cease to be Christian. Never stop being like Jesus, who became as human as we did and yet never ceased to be God. This is the challenge that we have. This is the example that Jesus set for us. And it's, it, it's, it's entirely impossible. What we do is we become like Seattleites and then we overcorrect and we overcorrect and we overcorrect and we overcorrect and we overcorrect. And the process of sanctification is to be drawn more and more and more towards Jesus every single day who did both of these things well. And the only way we will ever do that is by seeing him more and more clearly. Not just walking in his example, but seeing his sacrifice and living in that, knowing that there is no sacrifice that he might ask us to make to lay down our freedoms and our rights that he did not walk in first. For our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, you are um, the example, but you are far more than that. You're also the solution. God, it, it is, it's hard to know how to live in this world as a Christian. It's hard to know what are, what are things we can do and what are things we can't, what are things we can watch and what are things we can't, what are things we can experience and what, what should we avoid and who should we talk to and who should we not. And I, it's hard to know. And I think it's intentionally that way, that there's not a rule book. There's, there's you, and there's an invitation to relationship with you. We see you in the Gospels interacting with all kinds of different people and in all kinds of different ways. God, may we follow in your footsteps and, and learn from your example, but mostly be led by your Spirit. Pray, God, that you you would remind us each and every day to seek your face, to listen to your spirit, to be led by you in each and every moment, each and every decision that we make, each and every conversation that we would become more and more fluent with you, more and more discerning of your will for us so that we can be a light to our world and faithful to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, let's uh, answer a few questions. We have four questions here, uh, and they're good ones uh, too. So <clears throat> the first question uh, says this. It says, you used lying as an always wrong example. Didn't Rahab the prostitute lie to protect Joshua's spies? Was she wrong to do so? Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, she was wrong to do so. Um, and, and I... Uh, that's not no knock on Rahab. Um, it, I mean, wasn't the worst of all the things she'd done probably, but um, uh, it is never okay to lie. And I think it is uh, a, a, a philosophical problem that theologians have wrestled with, a theological problem that theologians have wrestled with uh, for a long time. Um, but in general, uh, ends don't justify means. So just because Rahab's lie resulted in Israel, you know, defeating Jericho and all those kinds of things, that, that doesn't make it okay. So doing the wrong thing for the right reasons is still not a right thing. And uh, that's, uh, it, it's an important theological point uh, for a number of reasons, um, one of which is what we just talked about in, in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, there's no, no temptation that has, uh, that, that that has overcome you that is not common to man, right? Like there's no, there's no temptation, there's no situation that, uh, that sin is the right answer for, that God will always provide a way of escape. So there's baked into the argument uh, that some people will make that it was moral for Rahab to lie is, is this assumption that God cannot or will not uh, work within 
uh, moral, you know, moral action, that God required a lie in order to save the spies and to save Israel, which is silly. So uh, there, there is some argument around this at a theological level, but I think it, it requires a number of presuppositions about what God, or God can or cannot do or what he needs from us uh, in order to uh, accomplish his will. So uh, yeah, no matter if you'll get caught or not, lying's not okay, kids, okay? Uh, number two. How can, how can ICON, how can ICON create a culture where we aren't just colleagues with one another, but we actually get deep enough to help each other fight against our own demons uh, and spiritual warfare in parentheses? Great question. Um, one, um, our community groups are meant to be the first step in this direction. So we have four community groups that meet uh, throughout the city. And they are meant to be the context within which we would create initial relationships, meet people, make the kinds of connections that can become these kinds of connections. In September, we will be launching what we'll call icon groups. And icon groups will be smaller, uh, gender-specific discipleship groups uh, that will help to accomplish some of this. But I would say this. Don't, you don't need a program, you don't need a group to be able to pursue this. You don't need us to say, oh, here's a group for you in order to reach out to the people around you. If they are your colleagues at this point, there is enough relationship for you to say, hey, I need help. I need you. Can you help me? Will you do that for me? Can we enter into some kind of relationship that, uh, that we could go deeper than what the community group allows for? So I know that's hard. And I know that's awkward, and I know you probably won't do that. But, but there's, there's nothing to stop you from doing that. If you know someone, to be able to just kind of humble yourself and go, I need help. Now, uh, we will have also have icon groups coming in September, which will be some of that without the, you humbling yourself and asking someone. So that's easier. Okay? Number three. Uh, I was at a farmer's market. Uh, and my sister stopped at a booth for 30 minutes to talk with a psychic reader. Can you share how this is relevant to the discussion of demons? Yes. And what is a loving response to a non-believer fascinated by this sort of spirituality? Um, so first, uh, yeah, how is this relevant to the discussion of demons? Uh, directly relevant uh, to the discussion of demons. Uh, I mean, I think most psychic readers are at best good at guessing and at worst tapping into the demonic, right? Like there's no kind of two ways about that. Um, some of them are total shams uh, and they just have learned how to read people and talk very generally about, ooh, bad things are coming for you. It's like, I knew it. Uh, or, or they're legit tapping into demons and I think that's uh, very real kind of thing. Um, what is a loving response to a non-believer fascinated by this sort of spirituality? I think this is a great opportunity to talk about uh, this. This uh, talk about your faith with someone who is uh, who is taking steps and spending money and allocating 30 minutes of their time to listen to a psychic reader, uh, that creates all kinds of opportunity to talk to someone to go, hey, what is it you're looking for? What is it, what is it you're hoping for? What, why do you trust this person? What is it about them that makes you uh, trust them to tell you about your future or guide your directions? Or Man, that's a great opening uh, to just begin to have a conversation about, because ultimately what they're doing is they're putting their trust in this this psychic reader, which feels like a crapshoot at best, right? So uh, there's a need that they're expressing by reaching out to this person, even if it's, I mean, farmer's market psychic readers are probably top of the chain, uh, but I'm not super familiar with that world, uh, but, uh, but they need something, and they're looking for something, and I think that, that uh, is the beginning of a great conversation about what they need and what they're looking for. I shouldn't make fun of people. Uh, my wife tells me that all the time. Uh, all right, last question. How do you draw a line to avoid over-spiritualizing things and seeing demons in activities, or quote, demons in activities that in the end just make us culturally weird? Um, uh, couple, th couple thoughts. One is... Um, I don't want us to avoid the weirdness of our faith. It is weird, and, and that's okay. 
uh, let's embrace the weirdness of it and and acknowledge the fact, uh, because I think there's a real danger that lies in all of us to try to normalize our faith and to make it seem like a regular thing or a normal thing or not a different thing, that Christianity is just like your life, only just like one degree different. It's your life, but I I, uh, go to church for 90 minutes on a Sunday. That's the only difference. And And that's not that's not right, right? Like that's not what we believe. And so uh, I think let's not be afraid of keeping Christianity weird. Um, Two, I think uh, there is a way to not uh, talk about demons in a weird way. And I I don't think that's actually that hard to do. Um, When you're, when, when, you, you ease into that conversation, right? Like I wouldn't walk down the street with a coworker pointing out the demons. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that. Um, you, you maybe ease into like, hey, what, like, what do you think about spirituality? And, you know, ease into some of that stuff. I wouldn't go straight to demons. Um, I would say three, like um, sometimes uh, these conversations get weird because you're weird. And that's not on Jesus, that's on you. Um, <laughs> So uh, I, I think, yeah, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't start the conversation with demons. I, I would ease into those things. I, I don't think it's that hard to, uh, to not uh, be weird about these things because um, everyone's asking these same questions, right? And, and some of us are looking to farmer's market uh, psychics and some of us are looking to the daily horoscope and some of us are looking to uh, Instagram as an example. Uh, to tell us who we are and why we matter. And so those conversations are always ready to be had. Uh, and I think that there's a normal way to talk about it, and that is uh, that begins with you having a normal, everyday expression of your faith so that you can talk about your faith in a normal, everyday way. Right? Uh, I think I would start with that. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. 